Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is where we'll be. Follow along with me. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called by one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. God, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for the grace that you've given to us in providing it for us, the grace that you've given to us in providing us with your Holy Spirit who not only comforts and encourages us, but guides us to truth. And God, we're thankful for the truth that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write. We're thankful for its relevance to us here today. And God, I just pray that your Spirit would guide and direct us to be in the kind of church that you have made us. God, that you've made us a beautiful, strong, brave, courageous church. And we want to live in the fullness of that, God. So as we seek to follow you, as we seek to glorify you, God, we pray that you'll empower us to receive, that you'll empower us to be, God, and that we'll walk in that for your glory and our joy. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So I have three kids. Noah will turn seven. Seven. Ah. In May, and I always say, I remember when his feet stopped at the ditch in my elbow and I could hold his big old head, and I mean, he was that big, and now he's seven, and uh, he's always wanting to wrestle and hurt me and all that kind of thing. Um, He's a good boy. Second is Emma. Emma's my princess. Emma is as girly as I think is, is humanly possible. So I could say to Emma, Emma, Let's go outside and play in the mud. And Emma would be like, got it, I'm going to go change. And she'd come down in an Easter dress. That's just who she is, right? She loves girly things. And she, uh, you know, yesterday we went to the mall and her and Ash went in a Veda. And she's trying on all these lotions. And she's coming back and telling me about them. And yeah, yeah, I don't know what that means. Okay, fair enough. Uh, The third is Isaiah. And Isaiah uh, on the fifth will be 11 months he is uh, sitting in the back there. I can see him sitting on the floor staring up at me. Um, and he's right in that space where he's starting to crawl, which means that our life is about to get a lot more complicated. Um, so for a couple months, if you don't have kids, what, what they'll do is, is they lay on the floor and then they'll start to kind of roll around and you're thinking, oh, here we go, here it comes. And then they'll get up on one leg and they'll sh- be shaking the other leg, you know. And, uh, and then they'll get up on two legs and then they'll figure out how to put their hands down and then they'll just sit there, right, on their knees and on their hands looking up at you like, look what I just did. And you're thinking, oh no, here we go, they're, they're, he's going to take off. And so Isaiah uh, uh, has been a little bit more slow on the draw than, than our other two. He just sits there and he kind of likes to rock back and forth and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and when, I, when I am playing with him, I'll, I'll stand him up and he'll hang on to my legs and he'll, he'll just stand there. And I said one time to Ash, as he was just standing there, I mean, he's just chilling. He's not, you know, all wobbly and that kind of thing. He's, he, he's looking strong. He's looking good. I say to Ash, maybe he'll just skip crawling. I mean, he'll go straight to, straight to running. I mean, he's going to be a middle linebacker for the Ohio State Buckeyes. So, uh, you know, let's just get started. Oh, easy. All right. Come on now. Um, Uh, if you're a guest, I'm from Ohio, so if you need to dismiss yourself now, go ahead, all right? I can't do anything about it. Well, let's just say Ohio State or uh, Marquette, okay? Um, Anyways, and and so I'm I'm standing there with uh, with Isaiah, or I'm I'm sitting there with Isaiah, and I say this to Ash, and Ash says, oh no, we don't want him to do that. And I'm like, well, I want him to do that. I I mean, I'm a guy. That's how we work. Like, we put stuff together. There's a bunch of pieces missing. We're like, oh, must not matter, right? And she says, if, if he doesn't crawl, he'll have developmental problems uh, moving forward. And I'm like, I've never heard of that in my life. So what I did is I, I Googled it, right? And, uh, 
and, and I found out that, that uh, a lot of uh, orthopedic doctors and, and, and child development specialists uh, say that if a baby doesn't crawl, they're going to have developmental issues in the future. Uh, they, they say that they need to strengthen their hands and their wrists and their, their elbows and their shoulders because they need to learn to carry the weight of their body and crawling helps them be able to do that. It also helps with their visual skills, their motor skills, and their left-right brain integration, which we all know is very important, all right? So, um, so, so then I, you know, sat him down and started trying to nudge him, but, uh, but it's interesting because the Apostle Paul is going to kind of explain to us a little bit of what my wife explained to me. In Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, if you were going to talk about the posture that he's calling us to, he calls us to sit, right? And I know you can't see me other than the top of my bald, shiny head, so I'll stand up in a minute. Um, he, he calls us to sit. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, he talks about us being seated in heavenly places. And he talks about us receiving the grace of God through our faith in him and being God's workmanship in this posture of sitting. And so the place that, that God starts us when he saves us is in a posture of rest, of sitting, and of reception. That's what God wants us to do. That's who we are. Kind of like my son needs to learn to crawl before he's able to walk. And this is an important thing for us because I found that a lot of Christians, whenever they get saved, they immediately start talking about what they need to go do. They immediately start talking about, I want to do this, I want to change this, I want to, and all those things are good and wonderful and right. But here's what Paul teaches us. He teaches us that before you can walk, you need to learn to sit. You need to learn to receive who God is and what he's done and what he's made you and what he's accomplished for you. And all of that isn't something that you earn. It isn't something that you work out. It isn't something that you go get. It's something that you're given. A Christian is primarily somebody who receives a work that God does through Jesus. And I've noticed that people who never learn to sit have a hard time walking with God. They have a hard time walking with God. And they think that God's favor and God's valuing and God's love for them is contingent on how well they can walk because they never learn to sit. And so that's why we talk so much about the gospel around here. It's why we talk so much about grace around here. It's why I want you to know who you are in God. I want you to know that God's done everything for you that needs to be done through Jesus. I want you to know that you're new in Christ. I want you to know that you're seated in heavenly places. And, and we have a little bit of a hard time with that. We have a little bit of a hard time with what theologians would call an already not yet theology. That right now, in God's, I'm seated in God's presence. I'm, I'm completely new. I'm completely whole. I'm, com, I'm perfect and holy before God. We, we like to talk about we're broken and we're works in progress. And, and that's the not yet part. But we don't often emphasize the already part. That I'm not a work in progress in Jesus. I'm perfect in Jesus. I'm not a work in progress in who God's made me. I'm whole in who God's made me. And I receive the perfection that I get in Jesus in a seated posture. I don't work that out. I don't jump up and down. I don't do calisthenics. I don't say, hey, God, look at me. I, I sit, I receive, I rest in who God has called me to be and who God has made me through Jesus. And I celebrate that seated posture. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul starts out and he says, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. I want you to walk worthy of your calling in 4.1 he says, walk worthy. In 4.17 he says, I don't want you to walk this way anymore. In 5.2 he says, I want you to walk in love. In 5.15 he says, I want you to look carefully to how you walk. The first three chapters he talks about sitting and he's going to transition into this idea of walking or maybe we would say working out who we are in Christ. If I've received the grace of God, if I... Have, am resting in who God makes me, if I'm not trying to, trying to earn it, if I'm not trying to uh, get more love, if I understand that God has given me everything that he has in Jesus and that I can rest in that, that I serve because I'm accepted, not I serve to be accepted, then there's this outward expression, this manifestation of the gospel in our lives that Paul talks about in terms of walking talks about in terms of walking. 
And the first place that he's going to start with us is around our relationships. Because really, our relationships are, are a big part of who we are. Uh, they're a big part of the expression of our beliefs, the expression of our character, the expression of our values. They don't, they don't just stay in our head. They show up in our relationships and the health of those relationships and, uh, and the love that's expressed in those relationships. And so Paul says, now that I've spent three chapters just over and over and over again telling you who you are in Jesus, let's talk about how you can show who you are in Jesus and let's talk about you doing that in your relationships. Four things that Paul addresses for us about our relationships. And I said to you that this was going to be a challenge for us as a church today. This is going to be a great reminder and a great encouragement if we can receive it as that. If we can understand that this is Paul speaking to us, having said over and over and over again, this is who you are in God. And he doesn't make a shift and say, so then now do this. He says, this is who you are in God. And because of who you are in God, your relationships will look like this. And when I'm talking about relationships, I'm talking about your marriage. I'm talking about your relationship with your kids. I'm talking about your relationships at work. I'm talking about your, your relationship with your friends. And I'm talking about the relationships that make up this church. I want you to understand something very clearly. Damascus Road Church is not the brick and mortar, right? It's not the, it's not the drywall and the chairs and the carpet. It's not the things that we, that we lease, Damascus Road Church is the relationships that make up this church. It's how, how David and I interact with one another, how Sean and I interact with one another. That's what makes Damascus Road either healthy or unhealthy. And so Paul is going to lead us to understand what it looks like to work out the gospel in our relationships because of who Jesus is and because of what God has made us. The first thing that he says is that we should be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. We should be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Now, this idea of unity is something that we love to talk about in the church. Something we talk about all the time. Man, we just need to be more unified. We need to be more unified in this church. We need to be better unified with other churches. I mean, I hear this argument over and over and over again. I want you to notice something that Paul says about unity. He says that unity is something that we should maintain. Now when I say the word maintain, what, is that, what does that connotate to you? If we're maintaining something, it means that we already have it. It means that we already have it. And so uh, the theology of the statement of, man, we just need to get more unified, is incorrect. Because Paul says, you already are unified. And he spent a lot of time and a lot of text talking about how God has made us one body, made us one family, given us one spirit and one hope and one God through one father. Over and over and over again, he talks about this idea of oneness in the church. And I need to make very clear to you that God says that he has made us unified. And so the goal is not for us to get more unified. The goal is for us to get back to what God says that we should be. Now, that sounds like semantics, but it's really not. When we talk about what a church should be, we want to talk about who God has made it to be, not the different manifestations of it. Unity isn't something that we should aim for. It's a byproduct of us exalting God in our relationships and in our church. It's this idea of aiming for firsts or seconds. There are things that if I do, I will, I will receive. If I love my wife well and I lead my wife well and I nurture my wife and I care for her, there are certain things that that relationship is going to provide for me. But if I aim for all of the things that I want the relationship to provide for me, I've found that when I'm aiming at a second, I tend to not get the first. But when I'm aiming at a first... I tend to get the second. So God says, aim at the understanding that the gospel has made you one. Emphasize the gospel. Emphasize the, the personal work of Jesus. And when you do that, you will be unified. When you do that, you will be unified. The aim is not unity. The aim is Jesus. The aim is Jesus. And so Paul says, 
not only should you maintain unity, but what's the emotion that he puts on that? Be eager. Be eager to maintain unity. Be eager to maintain unity. This is something that we should all be passionate about. This is something that we should all care about at Damascus Road Church. We should all love the truth of who the gospel makes us, and we should all seek to maintain the unity that comes through being the kind of church that God makes us to be. In other words, we need everyone on the field to be going the same direction. We need everybody to be pulling the same way. We need everybody at Damascus Church to think that the point of Damascus Church Road Church is Jesus. We need everyone to believe that. We need everyone to love that. We need everyone to be pulling that way. And when that happens, we'll be unified. We'll be unified. We'll be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. We'll be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Paul is going to unpack this further for us. And he's going to give us these four characteristics. The first characteristic of a church or a person whose relationships are gospel-centered they're eager to maintain unity, is that that person will be humble. That person will be humble. Are you with me today? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. I'm just not hearing anything. I'm just afraid that I'm just up here talking to myself. Um, the first characteristic of a gospel-centered church is that that church is going to be humble. In the ancient world, humility was something that was despised. The only people that were supposed to be humble were slaves. That's what they believed. And the, the characteristic of, of humility in their mind was this. And I've noticed that when you talk about humility, we have a lot of misunderstandings around what humility is. We have a lot of misunderstandings about what humility is. And because of our misunderstandings, we know that we should want it. But let's just be honest, we don't. And, well, actually, we do. I want you to be humble. I just don't want to be humble, all right? I want, I want the blessings of your humility, but I don't want to have to be humble because my idea of what humility is is that I'm supposed to just go off in the corner and be quiet. I'm supposed to kind of cower. That I, it's, it's, it's one of those we, disciplines that God tells us to do, so we kind of grit our teeth and we, and we all right, I, I, I'll be humble. C.S. Lewis helps us quite a bit on this idea of humility. This is the best definition that I've ever heard about humility. C.S. Lewis says that humility is self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. In other words, the trick or the truth of humility is not thinking less of myself, but to think of myself less. I've noticed about people's view of humility that they have to almost lie about what they're good at. There are things that you're good at. There are things that are true about you. And we have this perception that humility is to say, I'm not good at that. So my wife is great at hospitality. If you come over to my house, my wife is honestly probably the best uh, leader and servant around hospitality that I've ever seen. She does a great job of creating a warm, comfortable, nurturing place. She thinks of everything. She works hard to create a context that people can come into and enjoy. A lot of us think that humility would be for her to be like, I'm terrible at hospitality. I'm terrible at it. That's not humility. That's lying right? Humility is not for her to think less of herself, but it's rather for her to think of herself less. It's this idea of being able to say, by God's grace, I'm good at these things. By God's grace, I'm able to accomplish these things. I'm able to do those things, and I can receive those in gratitude and in worship. And to say that you're not good at them, listen, is to reject the grace of God in your life. Everybody in this room is good or great at something. Why? Because God made them that way. Because God made them that way. And when I serve and work in that goodness, I glorify God for the blessing of others. We call that common grace. To say that that's not the case is to reject the work of God in your life. That's not humility. In fact, it's arrogance. Because you're taking something that God says is good and going, oh, it's not good. I know. I'm just so humble, right? <laughs> Humility is to say, I'm good by God's grace at this, but to not dwell on it, to not be identified by it, to not think, I'm so good at this. 
Have, did you notice I'm so good at this? Hey, I was thinking the other day, I'm pretty good at this. That isn't humility. C.S. Lewis says that humility is self-forgetfulness. The ability to have a truth come through your mind, but not reach out and grab it and identify yourself in that regard. He goes on and he says this quote, If you were to meet a truly humble person, you would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were nobody because the person who keeps saying that they are nobody is actually self-obsessed. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Somebody that's truly humble isn't somebody who lies about who God has made them. They acknowledge who God has made them. They're just more interested in who God has made you. They're just more interested in who God has made you. I want you to think about how this would change the dynamics of our church. What if everybody at Damascus Road Church, eager to maintain unity, was humble enough to want somebody else to get the recognition? To want to celebrate somebody else, to want to point out somebody else, to want to make much of the work of God in somebody else. Not as though God wasn't working in their life, but because they're authentically more interested in what God's doing in yours. The reality of it is that we tend to believe that if I don't emphasize what's good about me, no one else will. No one else will. And in our pride, we say, I need to let people know. But if we were a part of a community where we were all mutually interested at affirming the work of God in somebody else's life, then I would know that when I affirm Nolan on the other side of it, Bill's going to affirm me. That would be the grace of God in this community. That would be the gospel working out in this community. And I see this lots of times in all different ways. The wife says, I'm very underappreciated. I'm very underappreciated. And so in response to that, she starts to talk about all the ways that her husband screwed up. I know this is completely hypothetical, all right? You don't appreciate me, I'm not going to appreciate you. You don't think that I'm great, I'm going to tell you all the ways that you're not great. And what we have is this understanding of Proverbs 13 verse says, verse 10 says that at the base, the foundation of all contention, of all conflict, is pride. In other words, if you're in an argument with somebody, whether it be your spouse, your boss, your friend, somebody at this church, what you can know is that the driving idol at the bottom of that is pride. Because if I am obsessed with God's grace in your life, I'm not going to say, hey, what about me? I'm not going to say, hey, what about me? A gospel-centered church is a church that is self-forgetful. A church that loves to emphasize what God's doing in other people's life, in the belief that God is doing something in all of our lives. A church that always says, hey, what about us, is inherently an arrogant church, and arrogance and the gospel are oil and water. You cannot have unity where pride exists. It is impossible. The only way that we can be a unified church is through a gospel humility that isn't that we walk around saying, we're all so humble. It's that we walk around saying, we're all so interested in someone else. One thing that I do want to clarify about this is that I want to, I want to make sure that you understand that humility is not the absence of boldness. Humility is not the absence of boldness. Humility is not the absence of charisma or of passion or of forcefulness. In this definition of self-forgetfulness, it, it corrects for us that I can, I, can be, I can be boisterous, I can be passionate, I can have charisma, I can be strong, I can say things clearly and forcefully and still be humble, can I? I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly bothered by this idea that, that passive inactivity gets put in the same bucket as humility in the church. I'm bothered that, that husbands 
don't lead their families. And I'm not saying that I do well because I, I've got a long, long way to go. But we just say, man, I'm just trying to, trying to be humble, you know? I'm bothered that when we see somebody in sin, we don't love them enough to go to them and confront them because we're being humble. I'm bothered that when we live in a city like Madison, that 3% of Madison is evangelical in any way, shape, or form, which means that 97% of the people in our city need to hear about the love of God, but we're passive about it because we're humble. We've missed the boat. We misunderstand. We blame our inactivity, our passiveness, listen, our fear on humility. Humility is not the absence of boldness. Listen to this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says that what we suffer today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled on the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of the man, of a man that does assert is exactly the part that he ought not assert himself. The part that he doubts is exactly the part that he ought to, not to doubt the divine reason. We should be bold about what God says is true. We should be passionate about what God says is true. And we should be doubtful about how great we are. We should be doubtful about about uh, uh, all of these, these things that, we, that we, we place our identity and our self-worth on. Listen, what, is, what does Chesterton say? He says that modesty has moved from, uh, uh, from ambition to conviction. We're supposed to be bold around ambition. We're supposed to be bold around bravery. We're supposed to be bold around courage. We're supposed to take big steps of faith in the name of God. We're supposed to love to proclaim the truth. We're supposed to say this is true and that is false. We're supposed to love to tell people about Jesus. And we're supposed to do so courageously. And the opposite of that is not humility, it's sin. It's sin. We need to redefine what humility is and we need to take humility out of our vocabulary when it comes to mission and we need to say we're going to be passionate and strong and bold and courageous and brave when it comes to what God has called us to and what God says is true but in our character I'm going to be self-forgetful I'm not going to be self-forgetful so that God will be happy with me I'm going to be self-forgetful because that's what the gospel accomplishes in me are we good? Yes. Number two, Paul talks about gentleness. Gentleness. And the word that we would probably connect to this is this idea of meekness. Meekness. We talk about meekness, and, and, and if you're uh, doing some reading, especially in Old English, one of the, the, the species that gets the word meekness connected to it is these, are these domestic animals. So, so uh, um, cows and, and sheep and I don't know that's all I know that's that's the end I'm a city boy so um we talk about we talk about uh beasts of burden uh we talk about them as being as being meek right when we talk about meekness especially in that context we don't mean that they're shriveled up and weak we mean that they're able to be controlled we mean that they're able to be directed. We mean that their strength isn't the overarching reality of who they are. A lot of times when we think of gentleness, especially men, uh, we think of gentleness as weakness. We think of meekness as weakness. Aristotle says it this way. He says that meekness is the mean or the average of being too angry and of not being angry at all. In other words, we think that meekness is just this kind of neutral, passive, inactive, I'm just being gentle. Aristotle says that meekness is the ability to be angrier than I should be and the ability to not be angry when I shouldn't be. It isn't the inability to be angry. Does that make sense? It isn't the inability to be passionate and strong and to be able to say, there's a hill, I'm going to go fight for it. That's, that's not what unity is. And, and here's, here's why this is important. Because I think that we tend to think that we'll passively back our way into unity. Like if I don't say what I think, 
and nobody knows really who I am, then we'll have unity. That's not unity. That's false harmony. Unity is something that you have to go get. You have to accomplish. You have to do it. You have to bring it. You have to maintain it. You have to receive it. It's something that is aggressively received and aggressively enacted. Otherwise, we're just all strangers saying that we get along. So when Paul talks about gentleness, he talks about this idea of meekness, which is the ability to exert power properly. Exert strength properly. And, it, and, and when you read in other places, meekness is the absence, listen, the absence of a disposition to assert personal rights. The absence of a disposition or a, or a temperament that asserts my personal rights. Are there rights that you have created in God's image, bestowed on you by, by who God is? Yes or no? Not a trick question. Yes, there are. Are there ways that you can wield those rights that are arrogant and destructive? Yeah. Read the news. We are living in a culture right now that in the name of my rights, we're ripping each other apart. We're ripping each other apart. And I have to let you rip me apart because it's your rights. But then you, we have this weird dichotomy going on. The gospel says that in humility and self-forgetfulness, strength under control, I'm able to not assert my personal rights. I'm able to say, that's not how I prefer it. But I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be humble before you. And I'm going to defer to you. That takes an inordinate amount of strength, doesn't it? When you first get married, <laughs> what you're going to find out is that you better learn meekness quick or you're going to be fighting a lot. True or false? Ding, true. Yeah. Meekness is the ability to defer. And whenever we're trying to defer to somebody, doesn't that feel like you're trying to lift a thousand pounds off your back? I love you, but I really do not want to defer to you right now. <sighs> that's not weakness, that's strength. Somebody who's meek is able to not assert their personal rights. Think of it this way. Someone who is weak thinks as little of his or her rights as somebody is, who is humble does of their merits. Somebody who is meek thinks as little of their rights as somebody who is humble does of their merits. The gospel accomplishes us this in us because I'm not defined by my rights or my merits I'm defined by who Jesus is and what he accomplishes on my behalf it's inherent to the gospel to be humble it's inherent to the gospel to not exert my strength but to depend on Christ's strength and so Paul says unity is accomplished when the gospel is deepened in your midst to be meek is to follow Jesus who gave me my rights and accomplished his merits on my behalf so that I could live in them. That's what the gospel does. Think about this in, in your marriage. Are you self-forgetful in your marriage? Think about this at work. Are you meek at work? Think about this here. Do you have relationships, number one, and are those relationships by mutual showing, affirming God's work in one another or is it a, a tug of war of look at me, look what I've done, look at my rights, look at how right I am. Thirdly, Paul says that we should be patient and that we should bear with one another. This is, this is one idea with two words. Patient is, is the quality. The, the ability to, to wait for, for one another, the ability to defer to one another, the ability to to not force my timeline on you. This is, you fail me, and if you don't apologize to me in this amount of time, I'm going to blow up on you. Again, completely hypothetical. Y'all are scaring me today. Patience is the ability to trust the work of God in your life on his time frame. 
You want to learn humility and meekness, try to work out patience, right? Because this isn't, I put my hands on your calendar and try to twist it to mine. This is, I trust that the Holy Spirit is more gracious and more powerful and more at work in your life than I can be by manipulating it. So patience is the quality, this bearing with one another, it's the, the word is to be long-suffering. To be long-suffering. And if we were to take that word and rip it into two, what two words would we come up with? Suffering long. Which lets you know that, that patience is suffering. And long-suffering is patience that suffers and is willing to suffer for a long time. It's the quantity. And so Paul says a gospel-centered community is a community that's humble, they're self-forgetful, that's meek, power under control, not demanding their rights, that's patient, qualitatively, not my calendar, and long-suffering, quantitatively, I'm willing to suffer as my rights are squashed, as I'm not affirmed in the trust that God is going to get you where he wants you on his calendar for his glory and for our joy. You see, when you start pulling apart unity, you see why it's a work that God has to do, don't you? We just talk about unity like, we should be unified, man. Okay, let's be unified. Let's talk about humility. Uh, okay, let's talk about meekness. Yeah, let's talk about patience. Let's talk about long-suffering. We, we, we use these words, we don't even think about what goes into them. If we're truly going to be a unified church, listen, a few hundred people, we're going to be unified. God has to do that. Because I'm not patient, are you? I'm not humble, are you? I'm not meek, are you? I have to have the person and work of Jesus take over my life and dictate our relationships or this ain't going to happen. I don't care how many bumper stickers you put on your car. It's not going to happen. We can't get it done. So Paul says, be humble, be meek, be patient, be long-suffering. And then he puts a bow on it, in love. In love. Love is the sum of the four parts. And again, we talk about this all the time, man. We, we would we'd be so unified if we just loved each other. And, and nobody, everyone just swallows that whole. Yes, we would. But what goes into that? What goes into that? What goes into that is self-forgetfulness. What goes into that is me not demanding my rights. What goes into that is suffering. I must suffer for the glory of God and for your joy so that we can be unified. I'm going to reject the demand for my rights. I'm going to reject the, hey, look at me. I'm going to reject that instant gratification of you need to do it on my time and with as little suffering for me as possible. All of those things must be rejected if we're going to be unified. And if you're honest, God had better do that or it ain't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. Because we are bent. We are bent away from unity. We're bent away from one another. We're bent away from relationship. And so that's why Paul says over and over and over again, maintain it. This is who God has made you. This is what God has done for you. So, so how is it then? What's the, what's the foundation of becoming this kind of church? If we were going to say, Damascus Road, do, do we want to be unified? What would we say? You can't even be unified about saying unified. <laughs> Do we want to be unified? Yeah. That's better. Do we understand that to be unified, humility must exist? Yeah. Yes. Do we understand that to be unified, meekness must be a mainstay? Yeah. Do we understand that to be unified, we have to be patient and go on God's timeline, not ours? Yeah. Do we understand that that involves suffering? Yeah. Long suffering? Yeah. Do we want to be a loving church? Yes, we do. So how do we do that? Here's what Paul says. Paul goes into something that seems completely unconnected from this. 
He, start, he, he, he talks about humility and meekness and patience and yeah, 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 we want all of that. And then he goes, listen, there is one God. He's the Father of all and over all. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one spirit from which we have one hope and by which we become one body. And you go, great, what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with anything? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that our relationships are dictated by what we believe. Our relationships are dictated by what we believe. In other words, listen to me, our theology leads to unity, not division, as many say. What I believe about God is going to dictate the kind of relationships that I have. Did you hear me? Lots of times, congregations and churches say, let's not take big stands on theological issues because they just create division. Or conflict. Paul is saying the exact opposite. Paul is saying, you need to know who God is. You need to know what God has accomplished. You need to emphasize that. And as we grow in our reception of the gospel, in our understanding of the gospel, in our working out of the gospel, God is going to provide us with unity. God's going to provide us with unity. In other words... When we have conflict around these issues, God is giving us a mirror of what we believe about him. He's giving us a mirror around our humility. He's giving us a mirror around our meekness. He's giving us a mirror around our patience. He's giving us a mirror around our long-suffering. He's giving us a mirror around our love. And churches, oftentimes, man, they are They are cauldrons of gossip and of backbiting and of slander. They're cauldrons of of cliques. They're cauldrons of us and them. And listen, that shows what we do or don't believe about God. Paul says if you want these things to be the case, you better check what you believe. And if you're not experiencing these things, I can already tell you what you believe. You see, this gets way underneath tolerance, doesn't it? I mean, it gets way underneath our skin. It gets way underneath our beliefs. It gets way underneath this surfacey, let's just get along and not bump into each other too hard. And it gets into what do you desperately want? What do you really believe? How do you really feel? How do you really view one another? Do I really love you? Am I willing to suffer along with you? Do you really love me? Are you willing to be humble? Are you willing to be meek? Not say it because it came to your mind. Not say it because you want to say it. Are you willing to have power under control? Or are you going to gossip? Or are you going to come and be quick to rebuke? You're so... Not if we're going to be a gospel church. If we were in the South, this is where you would go, you meddling. (laughs) This is is a a hard word, I've got to be honest with you. Because I I like to fancy myself humble. I like to fancy myself meek and patient, long-suffering. I like to fancy myself loving, don't you? When I look at the reality of my relationships, it shows me what I really believe about God and the gospel. I told you it was going to be a hard word, didn't I? You can't say I'm lying. Some of us say that a belief that there's one God, that there's one Father, what does it say? Over all, there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, there's one hope, there's one body. We would say that if you believe those things, you're going to be arrogant, self-righteous, intolerant, and judgmental. You've heard that. Paul says, if you believe those things, you're going to be humble, gentle, patient, and loving. Now why? Because the gospel takes us and makes us who God is. That's why. What is Paul saying? He's saying God is one. God is one. And when you believe and receive who God is, he'll make you who he is. When I believe 
the gospel, when you believe the gospel, it will unite us because we'll begin to look more like Jesus. If we are a church that our theology makes us arrogant, intolerant, and judgmental, it's because our theology isn't the gospel. But if our center point, if the thing which, with which we join on, which we're all pulling in the same direction toward, if it is the person work of Jesus, God will make us like him. He'll humble us. We'll be gentle. We'll be patient. We'll be long-suffering. We'll be loving. Us. We'll be all the things that we want this church to be. But God's not going to let us stay at surfacey false harmony. He's going to get into the core of who we are, and he's going to change it to look more like Jesus. John Stott says that the charity of our character arises from the unity of our God. If we say we serve a God who is one, then we should look that way. If we say we serve a God who is loving, we should look that way. If we say we serve a God who is patient and gentle, we should look that way. How do we accomplish that? God accomplishes that on our behalf. Here's my challenge for you. Lots of times, uh, whenever we've got conflict in our life, we, uh, we develop a plan by which we're going to fix that conflict. And we could put that plan under the umbrella of walking, right? I get in an argument with my wife. I hatch a plan to be able to better communicate so she'll agree with me. <laughs> I go to work, I've got conflict, I, I hatch a plan to be able to maneuver around to get what I want. I, I try to work this thing out. I want you to think right now of any conflict that you have in your life, whether known to the other person or not. You got it? The answer to the redemption of that relationship isn't for you to walk. It's for you to sit. So let me tell you how this looks. I get in conflict with my wife, like I did one time seven years ago. Um, and I can spend a lot of time thinking about all the actions that I can do to get my way. But if I sit down and I consider who God is and what Jesus has done on my behalf, it's going to change the way that I view that relationship and that circumstance, isn't it? It should. Whatever conflicts come into your mind, I'm going to ask you to spend some time thinking through who God is, what he's done for you, his grace to you, what the gospel accomplishes. I want you to soak and sit and receive in who God says that you are. And I want you to spend time in meditating on that, in worshiping around that, in receiving that by God's grace and your faith in it. And after you've spent good time soaking in the deep waters of the gospel, I want you to think about that conflict that just came to your mind. I want you to think about what made it conflict. I want you to think about what values you put forth to bring that conflict to pass. I want you to ask yourself, if I'm going to be a gospel-centered follower of Jesus, what is God calling me to do in this regard? And what I think you'll find is that what God's calling you to do will involve some patience. It'll involve some humility. It'll involve some meekness. It will probably involve some level of suffering because forgiveness always does. But what we want to do is we don't want to be the kind of people that develop a tapestry of activity around morals and rights and affirmation. We want to be gospel-centered people. That when our relationships go sideways, we don't walk and work and stand. We sit. We sit down. We receive who God says that we, we are. We receive who God says that he's making us. We receive who Jesus is. And we view the lens of our relationship through the gospel, not through what we want, how right we are, or what our rights are. And as we do that, I believe that God will unite us in true unity for his glory and for our joy. Stand with me. Paul 
Actually, Jesus, <laughs> whoops, uh, talks about, uh, <laughs> talks about that, that if, you, if you are at church and God has revealed some kind of conflict to you, and you're coming to church and you're about to do your religious thing, that you should, you should leave your sacrifice at the altar and that you should go and you should seek repentance and forgiveness and redemption before you go into all of these religious activities. Now, maybe the person that you thought of, they aren't here right now. Maybe the person that, that you know God wants to establish gospel unity with you and them, they aren't available to you right now. But I'm going to ask you to do some hard work before you come up and do communion. I'm going to ask you to do some hard work before you start singing. I'm going to ask you to do some hard work before you come up for prayer. I'm going to ask, listen, I'm going to ask you to do it before you give. Listen to that, huh? Because God wants to unite us around who he is, and he says that he's one. He says that he's one. And so I'm going to ask you through the first song to just do some heart work. And then at the second song, come up, take communion, sing praise to our God. We'll have people up front for prayer. If you came prepared to give, we have boxes in the back to do that. Pray with me. God, we, uh, we want to be brave today in saying that we reject false harmony and tolerance. We reject trying to work our way around one another so that we can both be right, both be right, both be affirmed, both uh, uh, have it our way, be unchallenged. And we say we're going to be brave in relationship. We say we're going to be brave in offering and receiving forgiveness. We say we're going to be brave in humility. We're going to be brave in meekness. We're going to be brave in long-suffering and patience. We're going to be brave in love. And we say no to the games that we play to maintain a surface agreement. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would get underneath all of those things. That you'd redeem and restore our marriages, our relationships with our kids, our relationships at work or with friends, our relationships in this church. That you would make us one because you are one. God, we pray that the gospel would be deepened and widened in our hearts and minds. That you'll do what you will with us. We're your people. Allow us to be growing in your grace, growing by your grace, growing for your glory, and growing in our joy of who you are and what you do on our behalf. We love you. In Jesus' name.